Hi, this is Arturis Karnishovas from Denver Nuggets, and you're listening to West Coast Pirates. Seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead. Guarded by Ochefu. Gets the step into the lane. Goes to the bucket. Layup. Rolls around and in. And a foul. Whitehead ties the game. Pow from Trenton. Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes. Coming to you just west of the Ward Place Gate from San Diego, California. He is Mike Dizzy Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tommy Chilkoharski, class of 1997. And we are Left Coast Pirates. How you doing today, Mikey? <laughs> That's just too much energy for me, man. Where, where do you want me to start, Tommy? Do you want me to begin with the monkey is off our back? 26 years, 17 losses, average margin of defeat of 16 points a game in the previous 17 losses and basically the same roster that got embarrassed last year by 28. It's over, buddy. It's over. Guess Joe Giuliano and the rest of Nova Nation is going to have to remember this loss in Philly this time around, huh? Now it's a rivalry. Tommy, you keep on saying, if not now, when? It's when, baby. Or do you want me to start believing in all the hype that's out there, all that chatter? They're a Final Four caliber team. They have experience. They have depth. They have toughness. They have a rim protector. They have scorers. And oh yeah, a national player of the year contender in Miles Powell. I just quoted Fran Fischella, by the way. But you know, I, I hate getting ahead of myself, but this is a special season developing right in front of our eyes. Bottom line, the word special and basketball hasn't taken place in South Orange on a national level in quite some time. Mike, I've been saying this for a long time, ever since the run of great seasons began. Back in 2016, when they won the Big East Tournament, that year I kept saying, this is the year we win in Nova. This is the year we win in Nova. If not now, when? Mikey, I don't know what to do with myself. When is now, Mikey? When is now? You do understand when you just predict that the streak is going to end every season that we do this, at some point it was bound to happen. No, but I meant it every year. I, it wasn't a matter of it. We had talented teams. We had the Isaiah-led teams. We had the core four teams. Mike, I'm, I'm out of my mind. I've been dancing since yesterday. So here is the difference between those previous seasons. And this is no knock on any of the players on any of those rosters. But not only is this a special team, you have a special player and you got Miles Powell kind of asking Andy Katz to come over in the pregame saying today's going to be making history. We are going to do something special today. They had a mindset before the opening tip even happened that they were going to change the course of history and it was going to happen that afternoon. That's what's special about this team. That's what's special about Miles Powell. And man, that gets you pumped up. 
Well, Mike, I just want to jump in and start talking Nova, but we got a long way to go before we can get there. So, without further delay, today on the podcast, we will recap the wins at Georgetown and at Villanova. We will go behind enemy lines with Omaha World Herald writer John Niatawa to preview the Creighton game. And we give a quick preview of the upcoming game at Providence. And finally, we look at the road to 2494. But first, Seton Hall 78, Georgetown 71. Uncharacteristically, Seton Hall jumped out and had a torrid 16-0 start, making their first four three-point attempts. There were some mini runs back and forth, but the Pirates held a 10-point margin at the half, 42-32. The second half lead would fluctuate between 3-11, and 11, but every time it got close, Miles Powell or Quincy McKnight made a big play to persevere and lead the team to victory. Okay, Tommy, stats in this one. Miles Powell back in the scoring column after a subpar effort against Xavier. 34 points, 12 of 24 from the field, and seven rebounds to boot. Jared Roden, 13 points. Romaro Gill, once again, monster game, protecting the rim. Eight of the halls, total 10 blocks. On the other side of the floor, Omar, you're at seven for Georgetown. Had a big game, 19 points, and Javon Blair also added 18. Georgetown used some home cooking, in my opinion, to hold an advantage at the free throw line. 21 of 24 for a plus 10 margin compared to the Halls, 11 for 17. But the Pirates kind of righted the ship somewhat on the glass. The Pirates kind of came out ahead 44 to 41, but they did yield 17 offensive rebounds to the Hoyers. But the defense was solid otherwise. Georgetown was held to 34% from the floor and 19% behind the arc. Mikey, before we get into the analysis, let's just talk about it this way. This was a sure win. The guys came out. They took a big league early. And it never felt like Georgetown was going to come back and take that lead from us. It didn't. But in my opinion, it was a little bit dangerously too close right I mean there there were points where it got down to three and they never kind of got over the hump but you're sitting there going wow we jumped out to 16 nothing and Georgetown's got a chance to make a sweat here so there was a little bit of anxiety in this game even though it worked out in the end I told you last week you didn't want to hear it but Georgetown plays well at home even from the depleted lineup from all those transfers from those dismissals and now Mac McClung sitting there on the bench in his pretty boy tie and suit jacket you know, I mean, hey, Pat Ewing has these guys playing hard. Sure, sure, but you just said it shorthanded. It's one thing to have all the kids that transferred off the roster in the beginning of the season. With Mac McClung out of the lineup, you got to put that team away after you jump out 16 nothing. So, hey, look, at the end of the day, positive result. Let's break it down, but uh, too much anxiety for me in this one. You know who's going to be happy to see Miles Powell graduate this year? It's going to be Georgetown, Mike. Going back his last seven games against Georgetown, he's averaging 27 points per game, and he's had four 30-point-plus games. We keep on saying that Miles Powell is a closer. Not against Georgetown, baby. Another 21 points in the first half. He's just got something that kind of gets him going. Uh, But to me, it, it wasn't just about the hot start. It was about, once again, how he stepped up when the team needed him most. He hit that big driving bucket, to push the lead back to six late. I really thought he got fouled like multiple times. He does that contorted finger roll, falls to the ground, looking at the ref going, where's the call? 
but you just get to the point where you expect Miles to make that type of heroic play when, you know, when their backs are against the wall. We also had some concern with Miles relative to his three-point shooting slump, and he did come out hot three of five behind the three-point line, but he did finish one of eight down the backstretch. Do you still have any concerns about Miles' three-point shooting? Yeah, it's a little little bit. I mean, it, it... There were a few kind of heat check moments when he was a little farther out than you normally like, and you'd like it to see a little more consistency throughout the game. But, you know, Miles is going to be Miles. I mean, we're going to complain about this game? No, we're, we're going to move on. And you know who's coming back nicely? Sandro Mamukelishvili, baby. He's getting his groove back. Eight points, 12 rebounds. The team was plus 24 when he was on the floor. He looked good. Just keep going. I'm enjoying this. Keep going. <laughs> Mike, can you is, believe that I'm actually complimenting Mamu? Keep going. Don't stop after just read me a couple stats. Tell me what else he did well. Keep going. Well, he, you know, he's 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 feeling good out there. I mean, he's getting himself reacclimated with the offense. He had some nice moves out there, driving to the lane with his right hand, back to the basket, post-up spins. I mean, he's looking good. I, I like it. I mean, but he's my guy, though, right? I mean, of course I like it. He just does other things on the court that are going to go unnoticed in the box score. He's an easy target to kind of set him up to break the press, you know, and he had that huge offensive rebound. We talk about Powell stepping up in crunch moments. Now you have Sandro getting that offensive rebound. And that was a cute little drop off for Roden who came following him behind him and hit a little like five foot floater. That was another key juncture that kind of pushed the lead back out. He just, he made an impact in the game and it was nice to see. For all the positives about Sandro getting back in the groove and Miles doing his thing, I still have one issue here with this game. It, and it, you're going to sit there and say, how can someone complain about 10 blocks? Here's how I can complain about 10 blocks. When 10 blocks ultimately leads to 29 second chance points. Why do our bigs block every shot? And here's what I mean. Right now, the other team has it in their head that Romaro Gill and Ike Obiagu are in the middle and they're afraid of what's going to happen if they take another step or two closer to the basket. You're seeing teams pull up. You're seeing teams put up these little floaters. The shot has already been altered based on their approach to the basket. You can't block a 15-foot floater. So at that point, turn around, box out your player, and stop leaving the weak side unguarded when it's physically impossible to block the shot. Sorry. Yes, Mike, I miss the days of Jaramipur and Bill Meyer not being able to jump over a piece of paper lying on the ground. Yes, I miss those days too, Mike. Why do they have to go block every shot? Because they can, Michael. Let everybody else do their job. This is not a problem. Why don't we move on to a real concern, Mike, With which is with uh, some of Quincy McKnight's play. I mean, he is stepping up and hitting big shots late. He is asserting himself more nicely on the offensive side. But the junkyard dog on defense needs to have a little better judgment, no? Absolutely. McKnight needs to understand that he is the head of the snake. And you're probably sitting there going, whoa, 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 what happened to Miles Powell? This is no slight on Miles, but when McKnight is on his game, it is literally night and day when he's on the floor. He gets his fourth foul against Georgetown with 17 minutes and 11 seconds to play in the second half. He's got to use better judgment. I I understand that he has the ability uh, and the knack to step in and take a charge. But 
but you can't do that early in the second half when you have two fouls already because you're giving the referee the opportunity to make that judgment call. And in this game, they called the block. Now all of a sudden they come back down the floor on the offensive end and he's setting a pick for Miles. And he's, you know, it was a, it was a questionable call. But once again, you can't give the referee the freedom or the ability to call you for a moving screen. You're just too important at that point in the game for you to kind of come out for an extended period of time for these little ticky-tack kind of plays. I just want him to use some better judgment. I, I'm okay if you want to be aggressive down the stretch, but do it when you have your full allotment of fouls. And the way Q plays, he's putting himself in these precarious situations where we all of a sudden do not have a backup point right now. I mean, don't you get concerned that if we're playing in an NCAA tournament game and he gets this kind of foul trouble, where are we going to turn to on the bench? No, certainly. You know, at this point, Anthony Nelson's not really part of the rotation, and he's totally lost his confidence. I mean, he had three minutes in this game. He looked totally lost. I know people are going to point to Shavar, but Shavar played 20 minutes. He had two turnovers and no assists. I'm not I'm not saying being critical of his game at this point, but Shavar's not a point guard. We keep telling people that he's not a point guard. Bringing the ball down past half court does not make a point guard. He right. doesn't initiate the offense from that. You want to tell me he gets some assists from the wings driving to the basket? I'll agree to you. He has some nice plays this season, but he does not set the offense up. And that was a point in the game where they function, obviously, a lot different with McKnight on the floor, and they kind of run them out of the building where they extend that lead where they're not in that kind of like fringy danger zone i agree and you know what people are going to come back and say though did they really say that but mike was there anything that the announcer said that made you go did they really say that i gotta have to go a completely different route this time i was trying to find stuff that the announcer said during the broadcast but but i thought they did a pretty good job so i'm gonna go deep deep into my analysis for being critical and i'm gonna go all the way into the post game show where fox brings on bracketologist Mike DeCorey. Who? Like, wow. My, my, Mike DeCorey. Like, right, exactly. Like, who the heck is Mike DeCorey? These, these different broadcasts have a different bracketologist every year. I, I don't know if I can give any of these guys credibility. So, so here's what he says. He says, if Villanova loses Saturday, I'm not sure if they can close the gap with a loss there and not another chance to get back at Seton Hall. I, I'm sorry, but you come on the show and you know they're going to talk about Seton Hall and Villanova and where they can be seated. And you have no idea that they haven't played yet? Come on, Tommy. You could have done a better job than this guy blindfolded. Plus, plus, he had Georgetown going into that game at 13-9, and 3-6 and six in the Big East, with two of their wins coming against St. John's in the field as a 12 seed. This guy is dead to me. I'm sorry. Yeah, you know, I keep looking at these guys that they put up as these experts, and I'm wondering where they're coming from. But, you know, I, I'll, I'll say this about Mike DeCurry. Nova is lucky that they do have another shot at the hall because Mike strike up the band Seton Hall 70 Villanova 64 Seton Hall was not intimidated by a sold out Wells Fargo Center of over 20,000 people as it raced out to a 20 to 10 lead the hall had a scoreless stretch that lasted nearly four minutes allowing the Wildcats to take a late first half lead 31 to 27 in the second half, it was nip and tuck throughout with 9.25 to go. Miles Powell went to the bench with four fouls. After that, Sandro and Quincy McKnight stepped a big time, scoring 17 of the final 22 points. 
Stats on this one. Miles Powell, 19 points, even with that foul trouble. And with his three-point makes from deep, he now stands alone as the Seton Hall men's basketball record holder for career three-point field goals made. Sandro, again, another big effort. 17 points, eight rebounds. Quincy McKnight, 14 points, seven rebounds. Jared Roden, nine points and 11 rebounds off the bench. For Nova, it was Sadiq Bey who led all scorers with 22. Jeremiah Robinson Earl with nine points and 14 rebounds. But those 14 rebounds did not stand up to what Seton Hall did on the glass. Seton Hall held a 43 to 32 rebound edge and it won the game beating Nova at what Nova does best. Of 21 from distance for 43%, where Nova was only nine of 27 for 33. You know, Mike, you know what I kept saying myself throughout the entire game? I just kept repeating the phrase, you know, we're really playing a solid game here. We're really playing a solid game. It was almost mantra level. I felt like I was back in my Zen and yoga class senior year when I needed three extra credits, but I didn't feel like doing a whole lot of work. You know, just over and over. It was a solid game. There were no heroics needed. Everybody just played their role and it was beautiful to watch. Maybe it's just playing Nova. At Nova, I have this anxiety level watching the game. I'm on pins and needles. I don't really get to enjoy it the first time through. So when I played the game back again late last night, I agree with what you said. It was just solid basketball. I mean, there were some moments where they over over exceeded my expectations. There were some moments where they struggled. But overall, it was a pretty good game start to finish. I still don't think they played a complete game yet. I still don't think they peaked. But man, was that a statement win. Let's hold the complaints, the gripes, the later on, Mike. Let's talk about what positives we can. You know, this is our statement win, Michael. We're 10-1. We're 6-0 on the road, Mike. Do what you got to do for the rest of the season, and we got ourselves our Big East championship. You're right, Tommy. It was another signature road win, if not the best so far, right? They're now 7-2 and two on the road overall. They have six quad one wins of those seven on the road. St. John's just dropped down to 72 in the net, so they fall out of that quad one category. But I think they solidified the committee's early projection of a three seed yesterday. If not, possibly have improved it to challenge for a two seed. Oh, no, we got to improve from there, Mike. If you saw some of the other uh, other three seeds, you'd think it was an insult. It's not, though. I mean, Maryland's up there. I know we beat Maryland, but they're playing good basketball. West Virginia, if you look at their, their metrics, at that point, I was a little bit surprised. But you go back and analyze their resume. They were a solid two, but they lost yesterday. And then don't get me started on Duke. They, they pulled the game out of there. You know what? And I think unless Duke completely falls apart, they're going to get love from the, the, the committee regardless. But the point is we're in this two to three kind of mix. And depending on how things break out and if they were to kind of run the table to end the regular season, yeah, you could possibly get into a one seed conversation. But the point is they want to be a protected seed line. You want to end up in Albany. You want to end up in Madison Square Garden for the regional finals. And if you're going to be in the top three conversation, you're going to put yourself in that position. And Mikey, more importantly, the quarter century is over. 17 and zero is over. We ended the streak. And you know what? I don't know if we've peaked yet. Wait a minute. You're allowed to say it, but I'm not allowed to say it. You're what? allowed to say that we, 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 can, we can still get better. You're allowed to someone criticize, but I'm not. It's Come all on. with how you say it, Michael. It's all how you say it. I put a positive spin on it. You went negative. 
Come on, well, Michael. Well, I, I, you want me to be positive? The support for Powell was in abundance. Everybody stepped up, but you know who stepped up the most? My boy, Sandro! Mamu Kelejvili! Mamu Mia! All right, okay, I'm done with all that. You had a great game, Tom. Tom, you had a great game. And I'm going to lead off with the, whoa, did you see that moment for the week? It, the game is at 46-45. You feel the energy in the building picking up. Nova's got the ball. They got a chance to take the lead. Uh, Jeremiah Robinson Earl gets the ball on the baseline. He's about to go up for a ferocious dunk, and the 20,000 are going to erupt. And what happens? Boom! Sandro stuffs it back in his face, and we go transition the other way. You got that, anything else for me this week? That, that was huge, Mike. And I know the announcers immediately went to saying that Jay Wright was losing his mind. Well, Commissioner Jay wasn't getting that call. It was a good block, Jay. Sit down. Don't get the Armani all wrinkled. Sit down. Well, that was like the extra little icing on the cake is when you get to piss Jay right off at the same time, right? It was just the moment right there catapulted a little run for Sandro and a key moment for Seton Hall because we, we talked about it earlier. Powell goes to the bench at the 925 mark with four, four fouls, and you feel like, uh-oh, Nova has a chance to seize the moment and take control of this game. Sandro gets the block. We come down in transition, and he gets this one-handed offensive putback high off the glass and extends the lead back to three, right? That was, that was huge. And then he comes back down on a couple other possessions and hits a three. And then he gets another offensive rebound. And I know you're going to complain and say, you got a lucky call. He was over the, over the player's back. You know what? Angel Delgado used to do this all the time. He'd go up for the first layup, point blank. He'd miss it. He'd get the second rebound. He'd get the third rebound. And everybody would be like, double fist pump Delgado, which is what exactly what Mamu did. And everyone's like, you got to love the heart for Angel. And I'm reading, the, I'm reading the notes here before we go into this podcast. And you're like, you got a lucky call. No, no, can't, no, can't, no. You can't are, make the first attempt. Mike, you just. I'm soft. You goes, I'm soft. You distort the narrative every time. You wanted to put that put back in the woe. Did you see that moment? And I'll tell you, you know, right after it happened, Donnie Marshall, I am loath as I am to agree with anything Donnie Marshall says. I do not like him. He could have gotten called for over the back. So, you know, it was more of a, that block, stellar. Jay Wright, shut up, sit down. The rebound, you got something to complain about. That could have been a call there, especially with how they were calling that game. If it were up to me, I put Sandro's entire second half from that point on in the woe. Did you see that moment? I was. I was. I know I mean, what I'm getting you for your birthday now. I'm just going to get you a Mamu jersey. He did a little bit of everything, Tommy. He hits three of five from deep from three, solidifying his stretch four abilities. He crashed the boards. He helped break the press again. He was clearly their second best player on the floor. Nothing, not sadder, the nothing sadder than a 40-year-old with a man crush on a 20-year-old. But oh, Mamu boy. wasn't the only one that played well. McKnight played well. He knows he has to be the alpha scoring-wise when Miles isn't in the game and he's doing a spectacular job. Roden has, has officially surplanted Kale in a rotation, much to my chagrin. But what can you do? Roden's balling and Kale is not. And you know what? The other teams may have started scouting Rogill, but he still has to be accounted for. You can't leave him open. You can't let him roll. And that's opening things up for everybody else. All right. So let's go back to McKnight quickly here. 
to me, that, that as well as Sandro played in that stretch in the second half, you still didn't know where the big bucket was going to come from. You know, Sandro has it in him potentially, but when the ball's not in his hands to start that possession, you're like, how is this going to kind of get going? You know, they're running the weave. Shavar is kind of dribbling it up high, wait for something to happen. But then when, when push comes to shove, McKnight gets the ball. He takes it to the hole. He had that little underneath scoop shot. He had another sequence where he kind of splits the double team, thought he got fouled, fades away in the lane and hits a little floater. Those were big buckets. And up until that point, he was struggling. I think he was like 2 of 12 leading into those two attempts. But when Miles was on the, on the bench and Sandro didn't have the ball, you felt confident that McKnight was going to do his thing. Past just other people showing up, the team finally showed up and rebounded the ball like we all thought they could. Everybody chipped in. Roden got his 11. The guards were crashing the glass to total up 13 amongst them all. It was just a total team effort out there. Well, this kind of goes back to the previous point of Roden has officially supplanted Kale for the majority of minutes. I mean, I'm not trying to pick on, on Kale here, but four rebounds in 18 minutes and Jared grabs 11 in the 24 or 25 that he played. You see, that's a bad take and it's a cheap shot on Kale, man. That that's, that's So that's not the reason he's playing in front of Miles. Leave Miles alone. All of a sudden, Miles is the whipping boy and everybody else has got their favorites. If my if Miles Kale was playing like he did last year, you would even be talking about rebounding in in association with his name. Move on. Move to something positive, I, you I, negative I, Nancy. I can't. There's there's that, an that's impact not here. the reason he's sitting my uh, Michael go on. Do you that's, want me to say that we, we won the rebounding battle because we didn't try to block every shot because he moved Sandro to the five uh, and Gil wasn't uh, in there to block every shot attempt? Uh, hey, they went small. Hey, how about that? Something that we've been talking about all season. The most important game of the season, it comes through fruition. Well, you know what was going to happen. There was going to be some games where the matchup dictated that Sandro was going to have to play the five and we were going to move Roden to the four. I loved it. I just, I thought we were going to have more of a kill at the three in that situation. Instead, we got Shavar. You know, Mike, and, and there's one guy that I think deserves a little credit before we get into our sour grapes and gripes. You know, one thing that came to me from the eyeball test, you know, the eyeball test that I love so much, and it, and it kind of relates back to my initial solid game, solid game comment. We complain about this team coming out the gate, out of sync, out of control, seemingly not having a game plan, just jacking things up. And this game had all the markings of a poop show waiting to happen. You know, it's a big game in conference against a team that's been basically the, the cream of the crop for all these years at a location where we haven't won in over a quarter of a century. And even in the face of a lengthy Nova run, Mike, they kept poised, they played tough, they had a semblance of a game plan, more than a semblance of a game plan. And I think some of that credit should rightfully go to Coach Willard. He pulled the right strings, he set the right tone, and he got the team to produce. Kudos for him. Okay. Okay. For, normally, I'm the one picking on Willard. I'm picking on his post-game quotes. I agree. He made the necessary adjustments. He put Gill out there and forced them to have to try to match up with him early. There were times that it worked, but obviously, towards the second half, you saw Villanova getting more comfortable with their jump shot, so he went a little smaller. Great. I you don't get like these huge accolades for making in-game adjustments. If you're me, if something's not working, 
I kind of expect that to be part of your job as the coach. And when it works, yes, you get the kudos. But to sit there and every time he makes an adjustment, make him out to be like Dean Smith all of a sudden, you know, or Coach K or, or whatever, you know, stratosphere you want to put Willard into, fine. But he needs to be making those kind of adjustments. That shouldn't be, wow, gold star for you. That, that's part of the job. So I, I'm, I'm coming off of sour grapes and grapes again, Tommy. So it, it makes sense just to transition right into that segment, all right? I do have a couple of things from this game. This is not a, a session to pick on Willard. I have different aspects that I want to cover. And I want to start with, how did we not have a shooting foul in the entire second half of this game? I mean, we can get into, you know, Commissioner Ray working the refs. But I thought the fouls that were number four on both Powell and Q were kind of bogus calls. You know, whether they're bogus calls or not, I thought the reps were pretty fair right down the line. If you want, Nova can sing the same song about the refs after Bay fouled out, especially on a non-call in his drive to the basket late in the game. You know, I mean, they could have called that easily on, I believe it was Shavar at that point. It was, it was. I, I, I'm not worried about the refs. They, it wasn't like we had a fourth stripe shirt out there underneath the Imani suit. Let's move on and get to some real gripes. I got one more point on this before we move on. I want the star treatment. This is why it's called sour grapes and grapes. I want Miles Powell to get the star treatment where he's got three fouls late in a big matchup in the second half, and he's coming off of a screen to try to free himself for a three-point attempt, and it's not that egregious that you kind of swallow the whistle there. I mean, there was some hand checking. There was a little push off, but that's the star treatment. You don't call the fourth foul on our best player on the road in that scenario. So so then do you call the fifth foul on their star player just for jostling with Shavar in an inbounds play? That, that, that's that was, what's, that, I mean, yeah, Shavar in a bear hug. They, oh, a bear God, hug. Come on, swallow their whistle. You got to give the star player the whistle at home. They blew that whistle at home, Mike. They called an off-the-ball foul in the course of an offensive set, not Bay denying an inbound pass and under a minute to go when the game's still in flux. So it's not the same. It's just not. I, I, I hope you stretched out before this because you're reaching here, Mike. Let's move on. I'm not wait, I'm not reaching about the offensive foul that uh, Q clearly drew against Gillespie. Michael, let's move on. Oh, Tommy. Okay, all right. Here, here They won the game. They won the game, but it's going to bite them in – the butt at some point when you go on the road or you play in a neutral site and against a good team, you go through a four minute scoring drought. So they did have another one of those 21 to seven to end the first half. Are you concerned about these scoring droughts that still pop up? Sure. And, and you know, I mean, it was a four minute scoring drought that obviously let Nova right in. I mean, we had control of the game. We were up 10 early. We looked good. And then we just kind of, weren't able to put the ball in a basket and it was a combination of of bad shots it was a combination of kind of not running any kind of offense just kind of seeing what was out there and yeah I mean you can't do that over and over again especially with teams like Nova or you know Creighton's a good team we're coming up against them we're going to Marquette toward the end of the season you know that's not going to help well, our defense kind of helps us in these situations. We play some pretty solid D. I think these runs can end up being a lot worse than they end up being, but the defense kind of minimizes some of the damage. In the past, that's a that's not a 21 to 7 run, that's a 30 to 7 run, kind of like what happened in the Xavier game. My biggest gripe, Quincy McKnight had a scary injury 3 games ago, and it looked like his college career might be over, you know, and and then he goes back-to-back games with major foul trouble. And right now in my opinion, he's the only point guard on the roster 
that's playing significant minutes. And if this is a final four caliber team, we don't have a backup point guard. We just don't. You know, and and having that point guard is so important in college ball, you know. And you know who Seton Hall is going to have their hands full with coming up is Creighton because Creighton has got point guard Marcus Zegarovsky coming in, and he's a baller. And you who didn't just be- you didn't just drop that accent on this podcast, did you really? I understand you got a Polish background. Reel it in, please. My Reel Polish brother deserves to have his name said correctly. And with that thought, let's go behind enemy lines with someone who covers them. He writes for the Omaha World Herald. Please welcome to Left Coast Pirates Live, John Niatawa. John, how are you today? Man, I can't complain. It's February. It's basketball season. Like, this is the best time of year. So, well, maybe March is the best time of year, but this is second <laughs> best. It's, it's, it's great. I, I'm, I'm having a blast following uh, the Big East season. So, glad to talk about it with you. I agree, John. Thanks for joining us. All right. So, Creighton comes into this week winners of five out of their last six after Saturday's home win against St. John's. They now sit at 18-6 and six and are tied for second in the Big East standings. The Blue Jays have really been more consistent with their basketball since their OT win over Texas Tech in the non-conference. What do you attribute that to? Hmm, that's a good question. I mean, I think that they have found some answers defensively. Uh, we know what they can do offensively. They've got three guards who can shoot it, pass it, dribble it, drive it. You know, they their their top three guys are really good on offense, and they've you know they they lack size inside. So maybe getting some buckets at the rim has been a challenge, but I think they've found ways to do that as well. So offensively, I think that they've been relatively uh, the same team for much of the year, but on defense, they took a jump probably in the middle of December. I think a guy like Tyshawn Alexander uh, really ratcheted up his intensity and his focus on that end. Uh, He's become their best perimeter defender and guys have followed his lead. Uh, Now they don't have a rim protector, so when teams get inside against them, whether it's dribbling or post-ups, a lot of times they convert. So the Jays have to be really conscious about kind of walling up and, and plugging up gaps, helping when they can. Um, they found different ways to bring help. And at times that means that they've given up wide open jump shots to lesser percent percentage shooters. More times than not, it's the guys that they want to shoot that shoot. But in a case, I mean, the last two games, the, uh, their opponents have kind of burned them a little bit. A.J. Reeves went six of eight from three um, in the Providence loss. And then uh, the Jays beat St. John's. But Marcellus Erlington was 10 of 17 from the floor, three of four from three. So it's they gamble a little bit defensively, but they kind of have to because they don't have a lot of size inside to help erase mistakes. So I think defense has kind of been the deal there. They've stayed in games with their defense, but it's certainly an offensive-oriented team. They have to make shots to win more, more times than not. Yeah, I was going to say when you made that comment that 82 points is not really locking it down on the defensive end, but I guess it helps when you put up 94. Yeah, exactly. And again, St. John said some guys go off. I mean, I think Creighton felt good about what it did against Figaro and Heron. That was kind of the primary, those two were the primary objectives defensively. They had 12 apiece and, and Machine Dunn was 2 of 12. So they felt good about those top three guys, but then everyone else kind of burned them and took advantage of short closeouts and maybe extra driving lanes, open jumpers. And that's kind of what Creighton has been, uh, particularly in Big East play. It's had to find, had to sort of identify one or two guys on the opposing team of like, okay, look, we're just going to have to give them more 
looks than they uh, typically get and hope that they don't, you know, have a 10 to 17 day, like, like Marcellus Arlington, uh, they could, they could obviously overcome that against St. John's given how well they performed offensively, but against, you know, Providence, AJ Reeves going six of eight from three. He's, he, you know, he's a pretty good shooter around 30%, but to go six of eight, that was kind of a game changer for him. And so that's a part of what they do defensively is when they bring help, that means that there are some open jump or, or driving lanes on the weak side of the defense that teams can can exploit. And it's a matter of, you know, whether it's the fourth or fifth option offensively, if that player can step up and, and make them pay for it. So Creighton's been lights out at Omaha this year with a 13-1 and home record. And the crowd's coming nightly, 17,000-plus. But they've had a little rougher go at it on the road. I know they've had that win at Villanova back on the 1st of February. But what makes this team closer to a 500 ball club when they're away from the friendly confines? I think I actually think it's more the offense, finding a rhythm, uh, hitting shots. I think that in a couple of their losses on the road, Butler, Providence in particular, they didn't shoot it well, and I think they got in their in, into their heads a little bit. They're so used to being able to knock down wide-open shots. And when you miss on the road, especially a, a, an open jumper, and the team comes, the opponent comes down and, and maybe drills one, where the crowd gets going a little bit, the momentum starts to shift, and you can't stop the momentum with, with something that you think you're pretty good at. I think that that's gotten to their heads a little bit on the road. So when you look at their numbers, the, the road games they have won, they've shot it well. And so um, I think that that's sort of given them the confidence, uh, given them an energy boost on the defensive end to kind of grind a little bit more. So that to me is the biggest deal. Yeah, it's harder, I think, for them to to kind of get their pace going. They're a team that likes to push tempo and get easy shots in transition, whether it's at the rim or they like to spread their shooters out on the fast break and, and get good looks there. And I think that becomes a little bit tougher to do on the road. For whatever reason, maybe teams are just a little bit more comfortable with their defensive plans. You mentioned the crowd, but that that kind of they feed off that crowd. Mitch Ballack was telling me he's their kind of sharpshooter from three. I think this is the Xavier game. One of his teammates got an offensive rebound and just sort of chucked it out to him, and he's standing on the logo. And he's like, I heard the crowd going crazy because our, our guy hustled for an offensive rebound, so I just pulled it. And he buried the three and everything, you know, Xavier had to call a timeout. It's like, okay, well, you know, that's, but that's kind of what they are in Omaha. They have the ability to kind of like go on big time runs. Well, John, there are some really good backcourt duels in the big East, but when you combine the trio of Tyshawn Alexander, Mitch Ballack and Marcus Zagorowski, Creighton is pretty formidable. Could you make the argument that they have the best backcourt tandem in the conference? I think you probably could. I mean, I just got done watching those three <laughs> combined for a really special offensive game against St. John. So, I mean, they had, I mean, those, those three were really good. And so when, when they're locked in and hitting shots, it, they become, they, they play so well off each other offensively. Uh, they're really unselfish and uh, they've got a lot of different ways that they can attack defenses and, and they, how they move and it comes to a jump stop pivots and looks and finds another guard open for three and, or, or maybe that guard then attacks with a closeout and drives and kicks to another guy, you know, they just work well together. Um, so they can shoot it. Like I said, they can shoot it. They can, they, uh, like they're unselfish. They can get into the teeth, teeth of the defense and even finish inside or, or, or create for one another. So I think that the balance that Creighton has is what makes the Jays so difficult to match up against defensively because, you know, you can't really focus on one guy uh, because then one or two guys will kill you. 
So those two, those three, those they've been good. And I think what I mentioned earlier, Tyshawn Alexander's improvement defensively has kind of inspired Marcus Zagorowski, Mitch Ballack to up their games as well. I think all three are better, but Tyshawn Alexander's really taken the jump defensively. I'm very eager to see the matchup. I'm sure he's going to be assigned to, to defend Miles Powell. And Miles had some good games, especially down the stretch against Creighton last year. So I'm intrigued to see how Tyshawn uh, handles that matchup. Now, you just mentioned Alexander, and he's gotten most of the accolades for this team, you know, being preseason first team, and he's currently leading scorer at 16.5 per game. But how important to the overall success is sophomore point guard Marcus Zigorowski? He's probably, I mean, if you ask coaches in the league, I would imagine that they would say Marcus is number one on their scouting report defensively. I mean, he's he's got a little bit more sort of, creativity on off the dribble than Tyshawn Alexander. He's a little bit quicker, certainly more deceptive. He's got a couple moves, these hesitation moves that he uses. I think he's going left and suddenly crosses right and uh, he's by you. Uh, he knows how to use his body pretty well. And, and he's, you know, he's a shorter guy, six foot, six one, but he still uh, can finish inside over taller defenders. But w- what, I, what I've seen so far through Big East season is, is teams assigning their top defender against him. Uh, Sadiq Bey has guarded him. In, in the Villanova games, uh, Xavier, I think either they put Scruggs and they might have put Marshall on him for a little bit. David Duke defended him against Providence. So they've tried to add a little bit more length to him. And certainly, you know, I think it starts with him in terms of Creighton's offense. And that's what teams have recognized. So his scoring has, has dipped and he's, he's had it. I think he's had a little bit more trouble finding um, open windows inside the arc to take away his three-point shot. Um, he's, he's starting to adjust. Now, again, we mentioned him in generalities, but Mitch Ballack seems to be another barometer for how the Blue Jays fare. In the last four losses, he's only shot 36% from the floor, which is well below his season average of 46. Should the Pirates' goal be to game plan around players like Ballack and Zagorowski from deep? Most teams have. They basically said the last few teams that Creighton's played, Providence, we'll say John's not as much, but they've really been committed to uh, running Creighton's guards off the line. Um, and that's especially true for Mitch Ballack. You know, you can't give him any space, even five or six feet behind the three-point line. He's, he's able to pull that and, and hit it with consistency. So teams have really tried to make those guys into drivers, and then they, they're kind of like, well, we'll figure it out as they get the ball into the, into the heart of the paint. And and to, to a certain extent, that that has worked. Creighton has come up with different ways to get those guys free. One of the little aspects of Creighton's sort of tactical uh, offense that I'm kind of curious to see, if they go to it against Seton Hall and if it works, is they have this, I think they call it a hit and chase. Um, it's kind of like a pseudo handoff, uh, dribble handoff. The big man has the ball at the top of the key and a kind of handoff tight. And uh, whoever's defending that guard usually gets clipped by a screen or just nudged a little bit. And it forces the big man who's guarding the, uh, the Creighton's big man to step out and uh, hedge hard. Otherwise, you know, that, that Creighton guard will uh, pull from three. And sometimes you'll see him sort of go one way. They'll fake the handoff and then the, the guard will take two steps and come right back and grab the ball and pull from three. They, 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 uh, the first matchup against Xavier is when they kind of unveiled this. Villanova does it a little bit too with Colin Gillespie where he kind of just gets hitted behind a big man and uh, you give him a little bit too much space and then he pulls from three and hits it. So they, 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 they unveiled it against Xavier and, and it was a game changer in that game on the road and Xavier had to make some adjustments in the second one. So that might be Creighton's best way to sort of counter that. I mean, a lot of times you'll see him do hard back cuts and, and try to get layups to, to counter the pressure 
and obviously just drive the ball um, with with purpose. But that might be the best way that Creighton can counter Seton Hall's size, especially at the four and the five, is you know put those guys in the ball screens, make them hedge out hard and defend, pull them away from the basket, and then maybe they can exploit it that way inside. So we'll see. So, John, you kind of beat me to my next question a little bit with all that technical analysis. So this matchup comes down to which team can execute their strengths better, right? Seton Hall likes to play at the rim, but they do have a tendency to fall in love with the three-point shot a little bit too much. They've had like 25-plus attempts in two out of their last three games, whereas Creighton, as you mentioned, is most likely going to beat you from deep. You know, they rank top 30 nationally at better than 37% behind the arc. In your opinion, which team is going to be able to execute their strategy better? Yeah, I'd assume it's Seton Hall, just because it just has more weapons. It's at home. Um, it's been, I think, been playing really good basketball aside from the, the Xavier blip. The recipe that makes the most sense, you know, you think go inside. That's where the most, that's high percentage looks. Um, it's easier to get those looks, especially when you got size like Seton Hall has. So my assumption is that they'll be able to do it. What's interesting is like Xavier, Creighton played Xavier. Now this was in Omaha, so it's a little bit of a different story. But uh, that was that was kind of that. If you if you go back and look at the box score, that Xavier killed Creighton on the glass. I think it got 19 offensive boards, had like a 20 point advantage in points in the paint, but the Jays hit threes. And, you know, so that sometimes that can be a difference maker um, if Creighton's hitting its shots. But Creighton's going to have to hit jump shots. I mean, that's kind of the key to the game, I think. And for, for Seton Hall, it, it will do a lot, to, I'm sure, to try to take that away. But if, if the Jays aren't hitting threes, then I, I don't know if they can hang in because of how many ways that Seton Hall can get high percentage looks. And you're right, teams, because Creighton likes to sort of build a wall and plug driving lanes and sort of sag off players and, and and keep the ball out of the paint. I mean, Providence had 18 points in the paint against Creighton, but it hit 12 threes. And so if Providence had shot its average from three, I think it was 12 of 20 from three. So if it's seven of 20 from three, suddenly that game is tight down the stretch. It's a, it's a one possession game down the stretch, or if Providence shoots less than its average, Creighton wins. So teams can fall in love with a jumper against Creighton because it can be a little bit difficult to get inside against them because they, they pack it in so much. Um, so that'll be, I, I will be curious to see what Seton Hall does. But then again, those jump shots a lot of times are wide open. And Seton Hall has a, 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 a lot of good shooters, I feel like, looking at that roster. I feel like most, most of the time they got four guys on the floor that can shoot it from distance. So I would imagine that Seton Hall um, will find a way to, to, give, to cause some fits for, for Creighton defensively. I think we're a little bit feast or famine with some of those guys. I mean, if you watch a game yesterday against Villanova and Jared Roden gets off to a hot start, but, you know, he can find himself with a night of one for four. I kind of go back to your analysis of the Providence game. It's not like the 60% behind the arc from Providence ran Creighton out of the building. They needed that to kind of get back into it. And I know the, the final margin was 17, but it's not like you guys weren't in that game, you know, midway uh, in the second half. Yeah, I mean, Creighton had a lead throughout much of it. Um, probably early to mid-second half is when Providence made its push. And you're right, I think Providence hit three straight threes to turn a – it was part of an 11-0 run. It turned a five-point deficit into a six-point lead or a six-point deficit into a five-point lead, something like that. But then Creighton answered back, and it was a one-possession game. Providence put the game away by hitting more threes. I think it was eight of 10 from three in the second half, which is unProvidence-like, obviously. Uh, but that's kind of the, that's part of the gamble. And the Creighton's going to have to give up sometimes. It's, it's going to allow teams to, to fire away from three. 
and it's got a hope that they that they miss. So Seton Hall, I'd imagine guys like Roden, uh, maybe Mamu, they're they're going to try their best not to give Miles Powell open open looks, but Quincy McKnight might get some. Uh, maybe it's it's a matter of either are they hitting or do they have the discipline um, to maybe turn down that shot early in the shot clock and find a way to attack inside with a little bit more uh, consistency and purpose. Because if they do that, then I think that they're going to cause a lot of problems for Creighton. One name that hasn't been talked a whole lot about is Southeast Missouri State transfer Denzel Mahoney, who became eligible toward the end of non-conference play and has paid immediate dividends for Creighton, averaging 12 points a game. Now, he's a solid 6'5 player who's very versatile, and Seton Hall has had struggles against players like him in the past. Do you think he's the X factor that fans aren't familiar with from a Seton Hall side? He might be because one of the sort of, I don't know, underlying strategic elements of this game is Seton Hall. Is, is it going to start probably Mamu and, and deal with the four and the five? How long can it stick with that lineup against Creighton? Or can it make Creighton pay to where the Jays are uh, you know too far behind where it doesn't matter? That's that's kind of been the question that a lot of teams have faced with traditional fours and fives against the Jays because of a guy like Denzel Mahoney, his ability to take guys off the dribble. I mean, they'll play him at the five sometimes so they basically have five guys on the floor who are six five or shorter but they space you out so much and then they go one-on-one isolate against your big men and i like denzel mahoney he he feasts in those in those types of settings i mean that that's what they did against villanova for stretches they didn't against xavier denzel had i think it was seven to ten from the floor against st john's on saturday so he's been a big uh, a big weapon a big x factor for the jays some lineup versatility and perhaps if he's if he's hitting and if he's able to uh to take advantage of some mismatches it may force Seton Hall to go small I don't know if that's good or bad honestly for the Pirates it may end up being a good thing I think they did pretty well with that small lineup against Villanova but it might be a, a piece of the game to to keep an eye on because yeah he's settling in he had he got off to a little bit of a slow start as a shooter during his Creighton career but he's found a way to sort of find his rhythm and and his flow as he as he attacks off the dribble so he's been a big a big piece and, and definitely a difference maker. I think Xavier's coach, uh, Travis Steele, called him the game changer for the Jays, getting him eligible. He's, he's definitely elevated the, the potency of their offense for sure. So, John, we got a running joke here on the podcast that Romaro Gill is a legit 7-2 after many of the announcers were dropping that line early in his career. We just talked about some of the size for Creighton in the, in the front court, and it, there's not much, right? You got Kelvin Jones, who's 6'11", but only really plays 11 minutes a game. They don't go any taller than Christian Bishop at 6'7", on their front line. Sandro's 6'11", Gill 7'2", Ike 7-plus coming off the bench. If Seton Hall has success on the interior, how does Creighton slow that down? They'll bring double teams. I mean, that's their only – they'll either front the post and have help on the backside or they'll bring double teams. And then that puts them in scramble situations and leaves a, a, a potentially open to a driving lane on the weak side. It opens them up to back cuts and all that kind of stuff. Like, you don't want to double team, but they're going to have to. I mean, most of the time they've been in situations with guys who can play with their back to the basket or uh, who have a height advantage, they end up bringing a double. So that's – That'll probably be what they go with. Um, they could show some zone, but I wouldn't. I don't know. I don't know if that's the, they've they've they have a one three one in their back pocket that they unveiled. They used to get St. John's for a few possessions, but it's mostly just kind of been a temporary change up, and then they've gone back to man. So uh, we'll see. I would imagine that you'll see the Jays kind of doing a lot of uh, rotating and helping and recovering, and maybe they try to trap a little bit on ball screens, hedge out to just try to keep the ball from zipping around the court there. 
so they have time to, to recover and, and cover everything up. But I think it's it's that's that's what's going to make it a tough matchup for Creighton if, if Seton Hall is able to find some success inside and if Creighton can't make Seton Hall pay by running the floor, um, by using the, using its pace to its advantage in, in the half court. One of the things about the Jays is they, they do move a lot. They move really fast in transition, but in the half court, those guys are always moving too. You know, the big man's coming up, setting multiple ball screens at the top of the key, diving to the rim. If, if there's nothing there, he'll come back up and set another ball screen. So if you're a big man defending that, you do have to move a lot. And that's one way uh, that the Jays have been able to get teams to play small with them. And then Creighton feels pretty comfortable when it can play small and, and it feels a little bit more natural for some of their guys on defense. So that's a big key as, as whether or not Seton Hall can exploit the Jays, use its size to its advantage. I think of way back the first game of Big East play, Marquette at Theo John on the floor and they tried it early. He wasn't able to take advantage inside at the start of the game. He barely played in the second half. We take offense to dropping that name in this podcast. Seton Hall fans are not uh, in love with Theo John after his antics at the Garden last year. And I don't think you could put his offensive skill set in the same kind of categorization as Sandro Mahmoud Kelishvili or Romaro Gill off the pick and roll. I think Theo John is very limited with his offensive game. So I'll I'll challenge you to say that that's not a fair comparison. No, I guess I just sort of, sort of brought it up in, in sort of generalities of like, hey, if a big man can't take advantage of it, then you might see the coach sort of say, all right, look, we're going to go small so we can easier match up against these, these guys. But you're right. There is no sort of direct comparison to offensive games between the guys that Seton Hall has and, uh, and Theo John. Don't feel bad, John. Uh, we developed a serious hatred for Marquette over the last few years. So to close up, we're going to put you on the spot. We want a prediction from you. Who wins this game? Well, I think Seton Hall wins probably by eight or ten points. My assumption is is that Creighton's just going to have just going to be in too much of a bind defensively uh, to slow everything down. And you know, it used to be uh, even last year where Creighton could kind of devise a game plan around slowing down Miles Powell, and they could kind of put their whole defensive focus on that. And yeah, they have Tyshawn Alexander who's proved he's probably better at sort of handling a one-on-one matchup. Maybe they don't need to bring as much help, but there's so many other guys on the Seton Hall roster that can hurt you. You mentioned Gill in the pick and roll game. I feel like Quincy McKnight isn't getting enough love for his improvement over the course of the last year, his ability to find people, hit shots, create. I mean, he was huge against Villanova. You guys know this down the stretch, uh, making big time shots, um, getting into the heart of a defense, uh, you know, Roden coming off the bench, like, I, or if he starts, I don't know, but like his impact, like they, they just, they just seem to have a lot more weapons, more balance. And that is, is a problem for a team like Creighton, which is going to have to um, sort of find in different, depending on the matchup, uh, bring help and, and uh, leave some other guys open. So I think Seton Hall is going to, Seton Hall is going to have a, not a, I wouldn't say an easy win, but uh, by the end, it'll be a comfortable margin. So Creighton's only saving grace is that it can shoot threes. John, let me throw you one more prediction to give us. Let's say we flip the script and Seton Hall and Creighton continue to play at the level that they're currently playing at. Now tell me what you think the prognosis is for a senior day in Omaha to end the Big East regular season? Oh, that's a good question. Because I just, again, I just watched Creighton make like 13-3. And I was against St. John's. And St. John's gambles a lot defensively and allow Creighton to kind of play the style of offense that it wants to, push and pace, sharing the ball. So 
that's a toss-up. That's a down-the-wire game. And I would imagine that the Jays, they've kind of been, it's not like quite a revenge tour, but they've kind of had in the back of their mind what happened last year in so many, they lost so many Coles games. It's their own fault a lot of times. They blew leads especially against Seton Hall in Omaha. Matter of fact, in New Jersey, too, I feel like the Jays had a, had a decent lead down the stretch. But they've kind of thought, okay, look, we, we need to get some teams back for the way that they've sent, sent us home in, in major disappointment. And Seton Hall, the way they won that game in Omaha, I imagine that's going to be on Creighton's mind. So I would say toss-up. I'd lean toward Creighton winning it at the end. But uh, – who knows? <laughs> that, it's hard to say without seeing this matchup first. Like once I know what Creighton's deficiencies are going to be against Seton Hall and whether or not it can overcome those offensively, I'll have a better idea. Because if Seton Hall races by him and beats him by 20, uh, might have a hard time picking Creighton even with the home court advantage later in the season. But we'll see. Well, John, we can't thank you enough for coming on to the podcast and taking us behind enemy lines. We appreciate you taking some time with us today. Yeah, no problem, guys. Thanks for having me on. John Neotow, everybody. Okay, Mike, Trayton is not the only game we have next week. We head up to Rhode Island to meet the Providence Friars. Since the last time the Friars met Seton Hall losing at the Rock, Providence has gone 2-2. Two and two. They've had close losses versus Nova and Xavier on the road, but they've also had wins at Butler and a 17-point win over Creighton. They're now 6-5 and five in the Big East, and in Kevin Willard's tenure at Seton Hall, he now sits at 4-4 four and four at Providence. The last couple trips there, Tommy, were kind of bizarre, right? So I'm not really kind of sure how to get a pulse on this game. Last year was part of the typical January swoon. Miles Powell had a rough game. They were face guarding him. They were getting under his skin. He had a little bit of a meltdown towards the end at half court with some fisticuffs. You know, you keep on telling me he's got that in the back of his mind. And then the year before that, that was like the leaky floor episode where Desi gets injured. And then we got to play the game because it's postponed on their campus the following day. It's just... It's like a weird building that we're heading into. I don't I don't know what to expect, to be honest. Well, you, you, you took my thunder away a little bit. But, yes, no, I, I think Miles has got that game in the back of his head. That was one of those games where it had a weird an early start time. So I'm driving home, listening to it on the SOU feed, you know, on the iHeartRadio app. And you can hear clear as day the Providence fans chanting overrated, overrated, just over and over. And I'm, I'm telling you what, that's in Miles Powell's head. He's like, overrated? Let me show you overrated. And I think he's going to come out, and I think he's going to have a brilliant game, and I think he's going to turn to the crowd a few times and snap that Seton Hall logo at them a few times before everything's said and done. You know who's going to have a brilliant game? Sandro's going to have a brilliant game. Okay. He was not on the floor for the last time that we had this Providence matchup. Providence cl- crashed the offensive glass to a tune of 19 offensive rebounds. And we said it, that was a seven point victory, you know, a, where the, the score teetered back and forth between like five and nine for most of the second half. If they don't get all those offensive rebounds, I think we run them out of the building. If Sandro's there to help control the glass, I'm not saying he has to go off for another 17 and eight, but if he just controls Providence second chance opportunities and we play a similar style to the first matchup, I think they should win this one pretty handily. But let's be honest, any game on the road in the Big East with a team who's fighting for its life, you know, Providence still could probably run off a little uh, string of games here at six and five, maybe put themselves in bubble conversation. They're going to be coming out gunning in this game big time. 
I'll say this. I think Mamu continues his solid game streak, but I think Alpha Diallo is going to be a tough guard for him. I think, you know, he's going to have to chase him more than he's chasing other guys. And he's going to, he's going to exert a little more energy on the defensive end than, uh, than he has against other guys. But you know what, what's been impressing me more, Mamu's been playing some solid D he's not over. He's not over pursuing. He's breaking down. He's recovering. It, it's he's been looking good. Well, that's it. So now you got Roden back at the three, potentially. You got Sandro at the four. You got the bigs at the five. You can even slide slide Sandro over to the five a little bit and have some more agility on the glass. It, it's just it's a couple different looks that we can throw at them. I just don't see us getting beat for 19 offensive rebounds again. And if that's the element of the game that Seton Hall controls, I think they should come out and win. But I'll say it one more time. You never know what happens on the road in the Big East. Well, speaking of the road, Mike, let's talk about the road to 24-94. With 53 more points added to his total this week, Miles Powell has climbed to 21-22. That, that's a monstrous number, Mike. That's just um, unimaginable to, to think about from where he started to where he is right now. And he might be one game behind Jeremy Hazel for that third place on the all-time list. And Tommy... I'm going to get back on the fence again. You know, <laughs> I, this, this is what I do. I flip-flop, right? So I'm still going to kind of have this pipe dream of the team playing the maximum number of postseason games. Three in the Big East tournament, cutting down the Nets in Atlanta. In that hypothetical, he needs to average 23.25 points per game to get to Terry's record. So uh, it's it's kind of a, kind of a stretch. You got to have a lot of things happen perfectly. But that number is within his wheelhouse if they play those numbers of games. Mike, I'm still telling you you're crazy. I think it's just too much of a number with too many things that can happen down the road. But, hey, we're rooting for him anyway. We, but, Mike. We, 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 we could have killed this segment two months ago if it was that far-fetched. I'm trying to give you hope. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to give you a positive spin. And now, all of a sudden, the segment that you wanted to be added to the podcast, you bury me every time that I try to keep it alive. I'm really confused. You're like a politician, Mikey. You're flipping and you're flopping. Mike, uh... let's wrap it up. Another 2-0 week in conference, Mike. Coming up this week. I see another 2-0 week. Let's just hope the team keeps taking care of business, doing what they're supposed to do, and beating teams that are less talented than them. I, I can't agree with you more. And what I take away from this week is, you know, as diehard fans that have gone through that 26-year drought to watch this team or this program not be able to kind of get back to the pinnacle of possibly winning a Big East regular season championship, all that stuff is now present it's in front of us it's there for the taking we all knew that this was the potential that this team could have at the beginning of the season there were some questions and some doubts to see how certain players would step up into certain roles and they're coming to fruition where everyone is kind of hitting their stride to an extent we agree that there's still more room for improvement but what has happened with this specific week this signature moment is that they've announced themselves to the national audience that they are there as a serious contender to possibly win that all. And it was one thing to be top 25, top 10, and get excited about the season. Now you actually have to believe that the ultimate prize is a possibility. That is what happened with this win at Villanova this weekend. And as we always say, Mikey, go Big Blue. Go Pirates.
So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please listen to our previous podcasts, which include interviews with former players, Mark Bryant, Marcus Toniel, Lavelle Sanders, Jerry Walker, and Shaheen Holloway. For Tommy Chilkaharski, I am Mike Dizzy Diziri, and you've been listening to Left Coast Pirates. We'll be right back.